thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. All right, people. Two things before we get started today. First, on this show, we've had some cute aircraft names like warthogs, tigers, and moose. Oh my. And second, despite air combat being a mature and violent subject, we've always kept the language on this show fairly tame. Well, that all changes this week on the Fighter Pilot Podcast because today's episode is all about the U.S. Marine Corps CH-53 Super Stallion, a.k.a. the Shitter. And we'll be talking about all the normal aircraft series topics, including missions. And in this case, that's hauling ass and trash. So buckle up. It's going to be a messy ride. Let's do this. Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast. The internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. Hello and welcome to the show, everyone. I am your host, Jello, and this is episode 122. We're talking about the CH-53 Super Stallion. And yeah, there is a little language on our upcoming interview with our buddy Twitch, but not to worry. It's nothing worse than what you heard, and certainly it's probably nothing worse than what you hear on television or on the playground these days. Anyway, hello. How's it going? Gosh, it's been several weeks since we had a chance to chat. I guess I last rambled with you on and the beginning of what the ah1 cobra episode at the beginning of september and whole lots happened since then we had tailhook in early september you heard boat talk about that on the commemorative air force episode and that poor guy was like a fish out of water <laughs> hundreds maybe a thousand or more naval aviators and he was one of only a couple air force guys but he did real well as did the whole bvr team we all met there and had a lot of fun and accomplished a lot Then in the middle of September, we had the F-14 Tomcast debut, and now we're up to episode three on the AUG-9 and AIM-54. Crunch and Bio doing really well on that. Let's see, we had a blog last month, and I'm working on one for this month. Last month's was called Just Thoughts. It was from a crew chief from the early 80s that we repurposed. And for this month, I'm working on one. Well, you just have to wait and see what it's about when it comes out. And then let's see, then we had, like I said, Boat's commemorative Air Force episode, which was really great. And he had a little bonus about the Houston Air Show after that. But he did have one listener question. And before I get to this response to it, let me just say, I would have answered it the exact same way. Because when I flew the F-18 and the F-16, we did not have any RNAV database in our aircraft. But listener Yankee Whalen from Canada wrote me and he said, I listened to the CAF episode and heard boats say fighters don't have an FMS database. Not true. I have flown the CF-188, and if you remember, that's the Canadian F-18, and both versions of the Super Hornet, and they all have RNAV databases. You can type in the air route, fix, airport, SID, star, or approach, and away you go. It's really good if you run into an emergency on a cross country. One button will show you the closest airports sorted by proximity, length, and availability of cables, which are barricades, you know, the arresting gear that can bring you to a stop. While the TACAN and ILS are the primary approaches, Yankee continues, 
The decommissioning of many traditional nav aids and air routes has made this an invaluable tool for getting across the country and into smaller airfields. Well, who knew, Yankee? I certainly didn't. Apparently, Boat didn't either. And I hate to admit it, but I wasn't entirely sure you weren't uh, taking too much of that Great White North stuff up there. So <laughs> I checked with one of my past guests who uh, is still flying Super Hornets, and he said, yeah, they have RNAV databases. They're just not certified for altitude. And so, interesting. I'm glad you wrote in. And yeah, I didn't mean to impugn your understanding there. I'm just having a little fun. Thanks for that. So Boat and I will school ourselves appropriately. All right, let's see. That was based on the CAF episode. Then at the end of September, we closed one of our Facebook groups, The Trading Post. I don't know if you were in on that or not. The idea was it was like a swap meet for military aviation memorabilia. Just was too much work and we're trying to simplify and it wasn't really having much of an impact. So we closed that down. Sorry. Then uh, in early October, you probably heard about this. We lost Mr. Crawford Hicks. He was the guest of our B-17 episode. He passed away at the age of 100. And of course, that breaks our hearts. But on the other hand, that's a pretty full life for a guy who flew, what did he say, 10 missions and was shot down, was a guest of the Germans for a couple of years during the war. So, wow, our heartfelt uh, sincerities and condolences to the Hicks family and all the squadron mates and loved ones of him. And then finally, last week on the 4th, we had the F-35 episode, which was really fantastic because Billy Flynn showed up and boy, did he, because he is a man with credibility and experience. And I only had one person write and say, you should have shortened the intro. And I deliberately left it long. And I know I was kind of chuckling in the background. And at the time, I have to admit, I was looking at my watch like, wow, this is a record. But for heaven's sakes, 2,000 hours in the F-18 and 2,000 in the F-16. What do you say? 80 aircraft, Eurofighter. He knows a thing or two because he's seen a thing or two, if I can borrow from that particular insurance company. I thought it was a great episode. Apparently, everybody else did. I had at least well, probably two or three people email the show and say, you have successfully changed my mind about the F-35. Thank you and congratulations. I think that's pretty cool. Billy, thanks again for coming on. I'm going to find a way to rope you into more stuff here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast because you're the man. All right, let's see. That's it for announcements. We do have some listener questions coming up in the interview itself, as we sometimes do. So I don't want to answer any now, but I do want to share a message I received on Facebook. And I'm going to leave this anonymous, but this just warms my heart and I hope it does you too. It says, Hey Jello, I just wanted to say that I love the podcast and you're doing a phenomenal job. I'm a longtime military aviation enthusiast and have always looked up to pilots, especially naval aviators. Your podcast is helping me get in better shape and stay fit. Sounds strange, right? I have a two-year-old son who also has the aviation bug, and our neighborhood is right in the middle of the approach path to Pompano Air Park. So five days a week, I grab my Bluetooth speaker, pop it on the stroller, throw on an episode of the Fighter Pilot Podcast, and start walking. I'll walk and listen to the podcast with my son while he points out all the planes that fly over, and I keep walking until the episode is over. Because of this strategy, get this, I've lost 40 pounds over the last few months, and my son loves it. At the same time, every day, he grabs my Bluetooth speaker and hands it to me, climbs into the stroller himself, and looks at me like, come on, let's go, Dad. It's my favorite part of the day. Also, he loves the intro. I do a little carrier catapult launch for him during the intro. I'll stop the stroller and have it vibrate, shake a bit as the engine spools up in the intro, and then do a quick sprint with the stroller as the intro really breaks in with all the comms. He loves it. Thank you for everything you've done for this country. Thank you for everything you do for your listeners. And most of all, thank you for making such amazing content. Your podcast really has a great impact on my life and has brought me even closer to my family and helped me get in better shape. 
parentheses. Bet you don't hear that last one too often. I wish you and your family well and nothing but the best. Keep being awesome. You're a great role model. Well, I probably should say who this is, but honestly, I couldn't remember who it was because I had said thanks and copied and pasted it and deleted it. But you know who you are. Thank you very much. And to everybody, you know, let me say this. So at Tailhook, I had people come up to me and say, you're Jello. I just got to the fleet. I've been listening to your show all through flight school. Thank you. And they're shaking my hand. That means so much to me, as do messages like this. You know, people tell me how great this podcast has been for them, but let me just thank you because it has been a huge blessing for me. I mean, I get to serve people. I get to meet people. I even make a little extra money, which is great, but it's just such a blessing. I just thank you, all of you. Uh, One more thing I just remembered about Tailhook, by the way, if you listened to episode four, you remember Bloach talked about his pilot in the F-14 when we talked about ejection seats was killed in the mishap that Bloach survived. And we talked about his sons went into the military. Well, one of Basher's sons came up to me at Tailhook and introduced himself. And we talked and I hate to admit it, but uh, I was just being sappy and I'd had a beer. So I gave him a big hug at the end. And I said, thank you for stopping by. And Thank you for just everything. It's awesome. So this show has been a blessing to me. And and if you appreciate it too, then uh, it's a win-win. Awesome. All right, enough of the sappy stuff. Let's get to this manly CH-53. Now, two things before we listen to the feature interview. Right away, you're going to hear me and Twitch struggle with some public math. So I had a chance to write this down. Three times 12 equals 36 plus five is 41 months. So don't throw anything at the speaker in the moment when you hear me struggle with this. And secondly... Look, somebody probably on YouTube is bound to point out that my guest mispronounces a particular word, not just once, but several times. Look, we all have our isms. Please, don't be that guy, okay? With that, let's get to our interview on the CH-53 Super Stallion. Hit it. All right, Twitch. A month ago, sitting in your very seat there was Jay Hoon talking about the AH-1 Cobra. And we were marveling that it took, I think, what, 18 months or so to get that episode. How long have you and I been working at this? 2018 was the last time I think I checked some emails. I couldn't find anything much past that. Well, there was a bunch in the middle, but yeah, March of 2018, I was brand new to podcasting. I'd reached out on that super group that we're supposed to not talk about. You responded, and I don't think we've met before today, but we talked about meeting in Miramar or getting a crew chief or something. But anyway, long story short, here you are, and thank you. Hey, it's great to be here. A lot's happened in, what, the 26 months? Oh, my gosh. Well, let's see. Yeah, March to 21 would have been three years, and another five is 29-ish, right? 24 plus, anyway, public math. Yeah, uh, exactly. That's what I tell the passengers, too. Yeah, exactly. So, anyway, Matthew Bowman, you're a lieutenant colonel in the United States Marine Corps Reserve. Correct. And you flew the CH-53. Super stallion. All right. Well, you are our guest to talk about that today. And as you and I were talking a little bit before we hit record here in our studio in San Diego, we decided I wanted to call it maybe like the H-53 blank stallion because there's so many. But I think with your experience and everything, we'll probably just call this the the CH-53 super stallion. Yeah, let's just do that. Specifically, the echo variant, if somebody wants to get in the weeds for it and Mm -hmm. stuff, you know, there's many variants through the development of this and even more forthcoming on that. All but right. My specialty is the super stallion. That's what I got my time in, about 1,100 hours. Okay. And the Mighty 53, as I joke, you know, we'll get into the mission, but it's big enough to lift your house if you piss me off or <laughs> barely big enough to carry my ego. Depends who you talk to. Fantastic. All right. Well, we'll keep it to the CH-53 Echo mainly since that's your experience. But before we get to that and all the variants there, let's talk about you. So we know you've got some hours in this thing. Where are you from? What did you do in the military? And what are you doing now? 
So I was prior enlisted in the reserve, so that's oh. where I started my career and okay. then uh, went through college. So I graduated University of Minnesota St. Cloud, the Fighting Huskies. Oh. If anybody knows Division One hockey, that's what they're known for. Okay. So then I did the platoon leaders course to go through OCS to get my commission as a second lieutenant and then flight school, just like every other gold wing aviator out there. So I wanted to fly, didn't matter what I wanted to fly. I might've told an inspecting officer during, you know, an OCS inspection when asked what you want to fly. And I said, I'd fly a truck for the Marine Corps, put wings on it. I just wanted to fly for the Marines. (laughs) And then here we are selected helicopters after primary and then 53 specifically West coast because I Hadn't rolled out west yet, and I want to see what this whole West Coast vibe was about. That's where I spent most of my career was at Miramar. Okay. So I flew initially for the HMH-66, the Wolfpack, and then did a couple of deployments to Iraq with them. Did a FAC tour as a forward air controller with a 2nd Battalion 1st Marines. Nice. And then came back to the Warhorse HMH-465. Went to wing for a little bit, did a staff tour till I went to the reserves, flew C-130s for a few years with the Yankees out in New York, and then uh, came back to wing as a reservist, and then now I'm over as a division air officer. But I also fly for a regional airline, and that's where we are today, sitting right. in the studio. Fantastic. That is uh, quite the pedigree, man. And I'm really looking forward to learning about this aircraft because, you know, it's cool. It's big, it's loud, it carries a lot. I'm really looking forward to learning about it. So why don't we jump right in with, uh, again, we're not counting on you to be the expert of the all H-53 family. And I think there's some other terminology like S-65 or something like that. But That's the FA designation, the okay. S-65 or S-80, depending on what variant and gross weight, you know, some bureaucratic stuff that I'm not familiar with how they determine that. But basically it's a Sikorsky product. Sikorsky, you know, made by United Technologies out in uh, Connecticut. Great aircraft, great capability. I think the first time I looked inside a 53 with all the analog gauges, steam gauges, as we call them, uh-huh. I was kind of intimidated. I'm like, I got to know all this stuff. You know, my <laughs> eyes were burning just because there's information overload. You know, yeah. again, squirrel, squirrel, shiny object. Well, we'll uh, we'll get to the Twitch call sign in a second, but <laughs> all right, so keep going. I mean, uh, the, the H-53 started somewhere. Tell us what you know about the background. Well, you have to really talk about the history of helicopter development, especially for the Marine Corps. Going back to like World War II, there was the need identified that, hey, we need to move troops and cargo and ass and trash across the battlefield. We got into Korea and this whole thing called vertical envelopment concept came along. You know, there's historians with pedigrees and PhDs that could go ad nauseum about that. But then we get to Vietnam where it really became implemented and tried and tested. Mm. You know, you see a lot of videos with the UH-1s coming in, developing troops. But the 53s really came in as the Jolly Green to haul mass amounts of troops and beans, band-aids, and bullets around the battlefield. And then, you know, the trap missions are the rescued, the downed aviators or casualty evacuation. So Vietnam is where the 53 really came into itself. There's a little bit, you know, Soviet competition because they were doing some heavy lift stuff because Igor Sikorsky, you know, way back then started the helicopter involvement, but he came to America. And then after Vietnam was really the push to develop the 53. And just like anything, you have different variants slap more equipment on, more capabilities. And then today we get to the Echo. It's more recognizable because the fuel probe and it's just this big lumbering beast with a million parts moving. All of them are moving but one and they all want to move in separate directions. 
A lot of super glue holds that together, bubblegum and duct tape. Yeah. All right. So as you already alluded, it's been used for a lot of different missions. But again, we're going to hold you more to the CH-53 Echo side of things. So what's the bread and butter role for the Marine Corps? So I've seen this thing hauling external loads, internal loads. It's like you said, hauling stuff around the battlefield, huh? You know, the Marine Corps has seven functions of aviation, and the 53 specialty is assault support. Ass and trash, as we said, Mm -hmm. heavy lift, external. Like there's videos, there's pictures of the 53 out there carrying a couple LEVs around, artillery pieces, back when the engines were new. Obviously, not such the case, but we're still hauling vehicles around, external sling loads, so we'll have big cargo nets of a lot of ammunition, a lot of food, Gatorade, Diet Coke. If you're Twitch in Iraq, always had to have the Diet Cokes. But carrying those around, especially out to the outlying fobs for the grunts, because our bread-and-butter mission is supporting the warfighter on the ground, that 03 trigger puller that... Jehun talked about. Mm-hmm. That's who we're there for. Yeah. Well, and I'm sure you've either observed or maybe even taken part in some of the MAGTAF demos at the Miramar over the years. They always show the 53s coming in with, what, a Humvee or a, a artillery piece or something slung underneath it. And I even saw a video the other day of a 53 refueling with the, something hanging down. And that can't be very easy. That is a little hairy, but going back <laughs> to like the MAGTAF demo, and mm-hmm. back in my mind, we had the Ride of the Valkyries coming in as the 53s are bringing in the King of Battle artillery landing. You know, mm-hmm. hey, we're the heroes of the battle, right? <laughs> you do hit on an interesting aspect on aerial refueling because that extends our ranges. And having been on both sides, you know, flown the C-130 and the 53, The 53 is best known for that capability because, again, demonstrating the aerial refueling capability while sling loading cargo underneath, that's more easily recognizable. But I will tell you, though, doing aerial refueling behind a C-130, it can be a little hair-raising a little bit, a little stressful, especially if you're in some turbulence like hot weather, hitting some thermals and you're bouncing around, or even at night, you're on the Amvis goggles, Mm. night vision goggles behind a C-130, and you're looking for your landmarks, you know, either the lights of the wings or the markers of the exhaust, there's some pretty tight clearances. And I think at one point I was looking at the NATOPS manual just to refresh myself. It's like just a slight, you know, frog's hair move of the cyclic or our stick, you know, and that main rotor arc is only able to move six inches because we're on the edge of our power envelope. The C-130 is hanging off of their prop blades you know, because they've slowed down with, mm-hmm. you know, their flaps out, which they don't like to do. So it's a delicate ballet. Yeah. And then, of course, the added stress, if you really need to get the gas and that's your only option, <laughs> you know, it puts a lot of stress on the air crews. Oh, so. I can imagine. And so I have a couple listener questions I normally save for the end. But since we're talking about refueling, let's cover them here real quick. Yeah. But before we do, you made a point that I was going to bring up, which when I used to refuel behind a C-130 in my F-18, I think they were always probably going as fast as they possibly could. And we were slowed down like 230, 240, something in there. So I'm guessing it's just the opposite for you guys. Huh? They're going as slow as they can. You're going as fast. As Correct. You. <laughs> and if I remember, we're going probably about 120, 130 knots. Mm-hmm. And the C-130s on the backside were, they're just barely about 130 knots, little nose up, flaps are out, almost on what we pilots call the reverse power. Backside of the power curve. Yeah, absolutely. So our supporters who get the uh, bonus here to ask questions, Victor Jagasit says, is there a special technique to approach the KC-130 during aerial refueling in order to keep the blades from hitting the hose or basket? And I'm guessing you just want to make sure you're not coming in from underneath, huh? Absolutely. So we'll have the onboard position, which is just outboard the wingtips. And then once we are cleared in by the aircraft commander, we'll actually slide in behind below the wing and just 
gingerly walk in power, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So we have a minimal rate of closure, like only one to two knots until you make contact with that probe. So that probe does extend outside the main rotor arc, but not by much. So again, we're talking really tight clearances. And then once you put pressure on that basket, it releases a valve to allow fuel flow. And then we get the indication in the cockpit. Yeah. And you hope it's over soon. So Gary Fry wants to know, what's the role of the co-pilot when aerial refueling and how does it compare to normal flight ops? So there's only one guy I'm guessing, or gal, of course, but at the controls here, what's the other one doing? Just backing up? Exactly. A lot of the times we'll have the crew chief from the back sitting on the observer seat up there with us. Oh, just wow. He's monitoring engine instruments. The co-pilot is working the radios if he can, or mm-hmm. just maybe doing comms or whatever, because I can guarantee as the pilot at the controls, whoever that is, your sole focus and your sole purpose in life at that moment is focusing on not hitting the other aircraft <laughs> and, and keeping separation as well as not burning up engines and, yeah. and whatnot. Well, and like I said at the beginning, we'd hoped to have a crew chief as part of this discussion at one point, and it just didn't work out. But there is a minimum uh, requirement of one, right? So a crew of three? Correct, yeah. So you got the aircraft commander, the H2P, as we call her, the co-pilot, okay. and then the crew chief, who is also a maintainer, too. So he knows that aircraft. We'll talk about maintenance man hours here in a bit, but I have to give a shout-out to our maintainers as well because... Mm. As I said in the Hurt community about a flight engineer, our crew chiefs, you give them a 12-pack of beer, a roll of duct tape, and a carton of cigarettes, <laughs> they're going to smoke the cigarettes, drink the beer, and take the duct tape with the leftovers and build you a 53 or whatever you need. Like These guys and gals, these oh, Marines yeah. are phenomenal. I mean, it takes a college degree to break these aircraft and a high school degree to fix them. Like mm-hmm. These guys come out of school, then they get to the fleet and start working on aircraft, and they work long, hard hours. Oh, yeah. We recently released an article on our website, a blog about it. And, uh, you know, why do they do it, right? Because you and I, we get the joy of flight and all that. But those folks that work so hard and they're stuck on the ground, with the exception, like you said, of your yeah. crew chiefs. But, yeah, I'm so glad there's that full team. And certainly the Marines embody that more than any other team because you guys are all uh, one fight. So that's pretty awesome. All right, Twitch, let's get back on track, though. Uh, variants, okay? So you've got a prefix and a suffix. Let's start with prefixes. Now, there's not really an H-53. It's kind of just the nomenclature. But there's always right. the C or MH or I think even RH. What can you tell us broadly about some of those? Broadly, like the CH cargo helicopter, the prefix implies as it sounds. The MH is the Navy variant, is more the mine hunting Mm -hmm. or mine helicopter because the MHs will pull a sled behind the helicopter for mine detection, mine destruction. One of the differences between the MH and the CH, looking at it, is the CH, the Marine Corps version, has the external fuel tanks on the sponsons. You take those fuel tanks off and the bat wings, which carry those, you just got the sponsons, which is where the landing gear's at and internal fuel tanks. That's the MH version right there. Okay. The RH, I don't know much about. That's kind of the Air Force Special Operations capability, the Pavlo. We kind of talked a little bit before we started conversationally. I'm not even sure if they're flying that anymore. I think there's also HHs and MHs, but you know, the nice thing about having a podcast, Twitch, is someone will tell me. We'll hear from someone out there. It's like, oh yeah, they're in this business or that, or it went away then. Mm-hmm. I think it did. But yeah, there's a lot of different variants out there with the leading letter. How about the suffixes? I think it started at A, right? A is always the first model in that class of aircraft or mm-hmm. that model. And that's always the base number. It's like, that was the first thing, the Jolly Green, the twin engine. You'll start regardless of what aircraft is, not specific to the 53, and you get into the 
various subsequent ones like the Bravo, the Charlie, mm-hmm. eventually up to the Echo and, you know, the future of the aircraft. But somewhere along the way, they added an engine, yeah? They did, right? <laughs> well, that was the delineation between the Delta and the Echo. So okay. the Delta was the old twin engine, which for the longest time, only the Hawaii squadrons flew it, like the Ugly Angels. The Echoes were, you know, the West Coast, East Coast, and Okinawa, and the 31st Mew and stuff like that. And they added that second engine, which... Third? Third engine, thank yeah. you. Okay. Sorry, That's I'm getting right. ahead of myself. Ironically, a unique thing about the Echo in terms of emergency procedures with that second engine there, this uh, little something known as a characteristic exhaust gas recirculation. So if huh. we ever had a number two engine fire, that was always a pucker factor for the air crew to the point that we'd be pulling out seat cushions and dry cleaning them <laughs> because that exhaust gas would circulate within that engine compartment and there was always, you know, hide fluid and stuff dripping. Mm. It was always concerned it would catch on fire. Well, what's right there? You got control surfaces, you got the tail rotor gear shaft. Right. So you lose the tail rotor, it becomes a carnival ride at that point. Nobody paid for that ride. Speaking of leaks, I always heard leaks were good because it meant there was still fluid to leak, right? So if... You're spot on on that. <laughs> if it ain't leaking, don't get on it. I got a story to tell you about that. All right, well, we'll get to it. Okay, so that's variants. How about who else flown this thing? Obviously the U.S. U.S., I guess West Germany a little bit. I've never seen it flown outside of the United States. We were looking at a few things. West Germany, I think Iran found a few on eBay sometime. I think we sold them to them when we were pals. I, well, I know we sold them Tomcats and F4s. Yeah, so. so I think, and F5s. So I think they got a few of these as well, which again, as we get to notoriety later on, is why they chose the RH-53s to go on, oh, what was it, uh, Eagle Claw. We'll get to that. And right? I ran there. But uh, that's why we used it, because we thought uh, it might. But anyway, Iran, yeah. So those are the only countries I'm okay. aware of. My team always helps me prepare for these. Then they told me Israel, Japan, I guess, had a couple, maybe. Austria and even Mexico had a couple. But primarily, it sounds like uh, the U.S. And, and a couple others. But all right, proliferation. What about looks? Tell me why this thing looks the way it does. And I mean, every aircraft is unique, but it's kind of loosely based on the CH-54 kind of sea crane or it shared some parts. Does that sound right? Yeah. You still see the sea crane flying. That was part of the early development just for the heavy lift. And then they realized, hey, we can move more stuff external like, you know, cranes do. So Mm -hmm. they enclosed it, created a troop compartment. That's the sexy beast that we know as a super stallion today. (laughs) Throw enough power on anything. It just looks sexy. That's all I got to say. No, true. But it's also got great big blades and uh, it's got a little smoke, I think, sometimes when it's uh, flying. So the main rotor head, seven blades, 79 feet in diameter there. That provides most of the lift. Helicopter guys live and die by vibrations. Maybe that's why I'm just not a little not right or my shoulder bothers me on rainy days. <laughs> so that main rotor blade turns about 179 RPMs. The tail rotor, 699. And in between, there's all these gearboxes. I mean, the engine's 14,280 RPMs. Then to the nose gearbox, about 6223. And then... 4271 for the intermediate gearbox. I mean, these numbers were geeking out here. Oh, they stick in your head though, don't they? I mean, I got 1,100 hours in them and, you know, (laughs) flew them on and off for eight years. And I still have dreams like I'll be flying my current aircraft right now and I'll have to think about something like, nope, that's old 53. You know, you know it so well, you can't data. That's right. Well, you always love your first airplane, I'm told. So, you do. Uh, yeah, it does have a very distinct look. Uh, again, people who are familiar with the Jolly Greens, which earned quite a reputation in Vietnam. There's some notoriety we'll talk about here in the movies and everything. You know, for me, so my last job in the Navy, Twitch, was at the depot 
in San Diego, mm-hmm. and out at the test line where we flew the post-maintenance check flights on the Hornets is also where the 53s came in and out. I would stop and take a look at these things when they were either coming or going because, number one, it's just huge and loud and menacing, but it's just cool, too. And they would sit there, and you did, I think you said maintenance check flights, right? So is there part of that thing where you guys just sit at like 50 feet for a while and, and just kind of hover there and check systems or something? Absolutely, and uh, I kind of got a special affection for the depot having been down there to receive aircraft or accept aircraft because that 53 has been around for so long. I mean, they have extended the service life of it just by, you know, bubble gum and duct tape, but, you know, replacing parts. So what you were seeing was us running rotor track checks and then doing other things in terms of like collective bias checks where we pull up in the collective and just make sure, you know, it responds appropriately and within limits. But we would hover at 50 or 100 feet there Back before we had the integrated mechanical diagnostic system, basically a computer plugged onto the aircraft, we'd have a crew chief over our shoulders in the cockpit with a, look like a laser detector shooting the track. You only want to make sure the track would move about six inches. So when I'm referring to the track, we're talking about the rotor blade plane as it circles the aircraft as it's running. You only want it to move about six inches, that tight tolerance to keep everything within balance because as... We know from accidents in the past, if something comes out of balance, that is not good. And helicopters don't react kindly to that. Well, you already talked about vibrations. Now, I'm no helicopter pilot, but I thought I remember some sort of dead zone at a certain altitude with no forward velocity. If you lose an engine, you're just going to come crashing down. But I guess if you got three, is that not an issue for you guys or it's known that you're doing a test? It's less likely because we could still have enough power, but you're not going to have enough power to hover. So you want to forward flight on that and mm. that point you'll become kind of like an airplane in terms of a run on landing unless you're talking about like vortex ring state which is definitely not something we want to that's exactly what i was talking about i know everything about vortex whatever you just said no just kidding <laughs> <laughs> well i'm glad people like you do twitch because that's what's important is everybody does their part all right so you've got the crew of three we talked about and you've got uh, one guy in the back any weapons on this thing uh, offensive or defensive i'm guessing you're not Lugging around sidewinders like uh, Jehun and his Cobra no, buddies. No, we're, we're more of a missile magnet than a <laughs> missile platform. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry to the age 53 community, but they're kind of true. Well, you know, all right. You know, again, not everything can be a fighter, but <laughs> you're doing a part where there's got to be some, I guess, degree of, you're not like kicking in the door. Someone needs to probably suppress the threat before you guys get there. Yeah, right? we're carrying in the door kickers is what we're doing. But so we got 50 cows okay. on there. So as I said. Crew served. Crew served, absolutely. So the crew chief will usually be working the 50 cal out the main side door, and then we have an aerial observer window with an aerial observer, which would be another maintainer, another motivated Marine. Maybe Mm -hmm. he's an admin Marine that gets called on the aircraft on the weapon system, and there are other door gunner. And then we got a recent add-on from the time that I flew 53s a couple years ago. They uh, bolted on a 50 cal, a GAU-21, on the aft ramp. So we got pretty much everything covered. Now we do have ways to mitigate threats like missiles. We got chaff and flares. So throwing off flares for any kind of heat seeking missile or a radar missile with the chaff, which is basically like aluminum confetti. It's like, mm-hmm. hey, here's a party over here. Why we go somewhere else? <laughs> exactly. I was also a trained flight instructor. So we also use the environment to help us snoop around right so in other words if i'm a bad guy trying to shoot you and you duck behind a hill that's a pretty darn good decoy 
absolutely. <laughs> you got to go through that hill first, yeah. and hopefully right. we're gone. You said train so quickly. People might have thought you meant train like choo-choo, but you meant oh. terrain. Terrain, uh, yeah. yeah okay. Sorry, I'm excited to be here. This is fun. <laughs> You at least can say, oh, it was my one time. I'm 120 plus into this and I'm still making rookie mistakes. All right, man. So that's weapons. How about performance? Now, again, it's not a fighter. I'm not worried about G's and all that. But what have you done? How fast have you seen? How high have you gone? I know you guys don't do oxygen. The thing about the 53 is it's got so much power. I mean, that's why we're able to lift as much as we do. And we can talk about heavy lift here in a moment. But the engines themselves, all them together, I jokingly say, you know, almost 15,000 shaft horsepower. That's enough for my ego. But also in comparison to other airframes, 53 pilots get overused to having a lot of fuel and a lot of power. And we're not used to being power limited compared to like the CH-46 C-Knight. Those pilots, you know, that's a retired airframe. If those guys put on a five pound box, they're sitting there with a pencil and public math, like, all right, we have to burn down five more pounds of gas, we can only go so far. So they're really getting into the nano details. We're like, hey, man, we got 15,000 pounds of gas. We can go for three and a half hours. You know, how much shit can you fit in a 53? Five pounds more. Isn't that one of the names of it, the shitter? It is. It is. <laughs> We're getting ahead to the notoriety, but yeah. why is that? There's many theories. I've never heard a definite history on that, but some of it is we're burning so much gas. We're kicking out so much exhaust. You know, it looks like it's shitting. We're carrying more shit. Or like we said, if it ain't leaking, don't get on it. It'll piss on yourself. You guys are hilarious. All right. So I guess when I was doing some research, they were trying to get a helicopter to lift like 20 tons. And there was some helo in Russia that did. It was like its own mini space race. But you guys, they always wanted you to be able to carry some big amount. But when it comes right down to it, you're not going to be carrying a tank around. And you guys are out of the tank business, as I understand. Yeah. So in the Commandant's new realignment plan. Okay. But you can carry, again, a Humvee, a AAA piece, a pallet full of, or a bunch of pallets, probably full of stuff. What's the actual load? like? So the actual numbers is 36,000 pounds total. Wow. So we have a couple different external hook systems. We can either do things single point system that there's one big hook underneath the main gearbox and we open up a trap door and that single point sling goes down through the center of the aircraft. That can up to 36,000 or a combination between two hooks that are fore and after the aircraft, a total of 36,000, but no more than 21,600 pounds per hook. And that's how we would carry like the vehicles or the artillery pieces through the dual point system. The single point system, you know, might be a netted load of like Gatorade exercise bikes, <laughs> pallets of food, yeah. you know, water, any kind of combination of things. And I assume in an extremis, you can get rid of the load and go do what you got to do. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Called pickling it. There's been times where, unfortunately, that dual point has had a history of trouble where the no load sensor is too good, where if we're in a turn or it senses no load, next thing you know, they're like, where'd who go? And there goes the load. <laughs> oh, you know? no. Is there, I'm guessing, a whole specialty of folks, maybe it's your crew chiefs, who know like how to load something? Didn't I see once, um, I don't know why I ask it that way, but like if you're carrying a part of an airplane that still has its wing on it, then that thing can start spinning around. And did that happen once? Like it got some lift and flew up and hit the blades or something funny? I don't know. It did. And I don't know the specifics on that. But a lot of those loads that we external have been flight tested okay. by flight test pilots. And we have what we call the sling load manual, which tells the helicopter support team, the Marines on the ground, they're, you know, they're logistics Marines putting these loads together, how to prep the loads. And then we refer to them, the air crew refers to them 
to make sure we can carry it or how we should carry it. But you're absolutely right. I knew back in Iraq, I wasn't part of the mission, but some of the more senior pilots were where they actually had to pick up, if I remember, at a down CH-47 that had a hard landing and carry it out during uh, Operation uh, Iraqi Freedom and stuff. So we do carry other aircraft, not C-130s. That's kind of the limit, but almost anything up to that yeah. point. I mean, and those aircraft are stripped down, like the, yeah. main, the main rotor blades, Fluids empty of and gas. everything, yeah. yeah, for sure. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com slash careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com slash careers. Visit today. And then getting back, I forgot to ask you on the looks part of it. This thing can kind of transform her down a little bit, right? That's the idea is you can fit it inside a C-5 or C-17. I mean, God knows you guys don't want to, when you deploy to Iraq, fly the thing all the way there if you can help it. No, especially not across the pond, yeah. uh, known as the Pacific or the Atlantic uh-huh. Ocean. Right. Yeah. So the aircraft was designed for shipboard operations because as Marines, we pride ourselves on amphibious ops, naval mm-hmm. integration and stuff. So that tail rotor, I remember you talked a little bit about it with Jay Hoon or he mentioned it will actually fold back and that main rotor will fold all towards the tail and then you can actually fit into a C-17, just one per C-17. So we can air transport it or ideally if they want to fold it to fit in the hangar of a ship or on deck to fit more of them in there. Yeah, because on board ship, there's never enough room, it seems like. So even the fixed wing will have their wings fold up or sweep back. Funny anecdote on that, going back to the depot there is the civilian maintainers that would get the aircraft ready for our test and we do the acceptance test. Mm-hmm. There's times where I'm like, hey, did we fold the blades on this? And they're like, oh no, we're good, sir. They never want to fold them because the hydraulic lines would always break. And I'm like, nope, part of the test card says we got to fold it. And they'd roll their eyes and <laughs> like, oh, we're working weekends again. Uh-huh. Because what would happen? Sprung a leak. Yeah. I'm like, all right, guys, we're done. We'll see you on Monday. <laughs> I tell you, just a quick shout out to those guys. It was always fun to see a new uh, 53, sorry. And by new, I mean out of rehab, if you will, because it was brand new paint. It was like a new car. And then invariably, you guys would fly one in to go through (laughs) next. You'd see the before and after. You know, it was well-worn, well-loved. So that's good. All right, getting back to performance, you avoided my question. You're well on your way to being a politician, buddy. Sorry. Uh, (laughs) Fastest and highest. Oh, yes. All right. So the VNE or the max speed is 150 knots, but right. normal cruise for us was about 130 knots comfortably. The highest that I've flown it and that I remember from NATOPS was about 10,000 feet, and that was something about limited for the generators. Okay. Now, there was one time I remember in Iraq, we were coming back from a Korean village out by the Jordanian border heading towards um, El Takatum there, and there was a big dust storm. 
that we wanted to get above. And we're like, ah, oh, we'll go up to 10,000 feet. We could barely get above the dust storm, but we're at 10,000 feet in there. A helicopter, especially during the summer, had enough power. I mean, obviously with forward flight, performed relatively well. So this beast, she is loved. She's been tried and tested. It starts getting cold up there, though, and then you've got a limit on how long you can spend with oxygen and all that. But, Absolutely. All right. But I can tell you that five, 10 degrees cooler was like... Oh, that was a blessing. Club Med back <laughs> in the day. Can you pull many Gs in this thing? Obviously, you don't want to, but... It, no, no, I mean, you'll feel it okay. in a turn stuff, but yeah. it's not made for pulling Gs. No, for sure. All right, how about strengths and weaknesses? And I always have to caveat this, so let me just ask it this way instead. What was your favorite thing about it, and what was the one thing you wish they had fixed and they never did, maybe? Just, it's a very stable IFR platform flying really? in instrument meteorological conditions. Hmm. It's got AFCS. Explain that real quick. I'm sorry, automatic flight control system. Right, so yeah. it really works to stabilize a lot of the, your inputs. It's hydraulically actuated flight controls and rods and linkages and stuff like mm-hmm. that. It makes the pilot workload, you're already working flying a helicopter, but it makes it a little bit more easier. So absolutely love that aspect of it. All right. On the flip side, same thing. If you lose those, lose uh-huh. the, your flight control, automatic flight control system, or, you know, we'd always train by turning off the hydraulic boosters, then you're really working. I mean, we call it steering the pot, trying to land yeah. that thing. And you can't see me in the studio, but literally you're putting your whole body into it. <laughs> playing the drums. Playing the drums. Every steering. limb is busy. <laughs> yeah. I bet that could be uh, a lot of fun at the ship. Did you deploy on a ARG or whatever? I didn't deploy on a ship per se. Yeah, did but landings, right? We did landings. Yeah. I did some short-term or short-time shipboard ops in support of um, various fleet weeks up and down the West Coast. One of my favorite stories is we were on the Bonham Richard. She just came out of the yard, and they were trying to get recurrent on shipboard operations, so we steamed up with them to Seattle, supported Fleet Week with the CO. Seafest or something? Uh, What do they call it? Yeah, Seattle Seafest. Yeah, because San Francisco does a Fleet Week. But anyway, Absolutely. And then... The CO flew back early to welcome part of the squadron back that was coming back from the 31st Mew in Okinawa. Okay. And he's like, all right, you bring these couple aircraft and these Marines back. And we flew cross country down the West Coast. Best four days of my life as a captain <laughs> because I was large and in charge. There you go. Is a landing aboard ship, is it somewhat administrative or, or you know, in a jet community, of course, we're all a bunch of prima donnas, right? But uh, we always bellyache about the night carrier landings. But were your landings administrative or was it pretty challenging? I would say nothing around the ship is administrative, yeah, just kind of like you, mm-hmm. just because of the risks and the challenges involved, even as we call them, day ship landings can be challenging because you could be in close proximity to the superstructure, other aircraft. And if you're not familiar with the ship like i've been on ship a little bit but there's marines that deployed on the ship and they got many more landings than i do but just doing simple bounces during the day and then add the complexity of night like you know Mm -hmm. we talk about like low light landings and stuff where you turn off the lights in a room and you kind of have some feeling or an idea you know or looking through a night vision camcorder i guess is the best way to describe it just adds a layer of complexity to that. And like you said, I mean, you're working in such close, confined quarters on the ship. All it takes is some airman or a young private to run into the L.A. right when you're trying to land. And then, of course, if the ship starts moving, crazy winds. So, yeah, a lot of variables there transpiring against you. All right. So I might have to circle back with you on this one, Twitch. So your biggest complaint about the Super Stallion is uh, if you lose the flight controls. Is that what you're going with? 
<laughs> well, I, we'll talk about the greenhouse. They call the cockpit too. Because oh, all the glass. All the glass. And the sun's beating in on you. Especially in the desert there. I Ooh, mean, yeah. when I was a co-pilot, a, a helicopter aircraft commander had a thermometer on his watch and it quit working at 130 degrees. <laughs> and I'm like, it's got to be hotter than that because, you know, we drink gallons of water yeah. at the end of an eight-hour mission day or something like that. We're what we do in the ring route, just going from fob to fob. You know, you sit there and you can't peel yourself out of the seat because you're just so tired and you're so hot. You're like, I just need the courage and the gumption just to get up right now. Crazy. And stuff. But going back to the flight controls, though, is we trained to it. You know, we never trained enough because it's one of those things like you stick your finger in a light socket. Like, I don't want to do that again. You're adverse to that, but you got to force yourself to train to it. So it was always a challenge, if that makes sense. When you guys were deployed like that, I was somewhat surprised. I don't know why. When Jay Hoon talked about his pistol and M4, did you guys do the same? Do you have some? We did. We all had M4s that we carry with us as as well as our M9 Breda pistols that we'd have with us in our flight gear. I'm ashamed to admit that until I deployed to Afghanistan in 2009, I didn't know what an M4 was. I thought we still used M16s. (laughs) So I'm familiar with an AR-15. So for anyone listening, the M16, I guess, is long gone, but an M4 is very similar, I guess we'll say. So, it is. It's it, still a 5.56. Five, it's just a carbine, collapsible stock there version. You go. All right, man. My favorite part. Actually, hold on. Strengths and weaknesses. I didn't, I don't think warn you, but you heard Jehun talking about it. Maintenance man hours, cost per flight hour. Yeah. I've got a resource so I can look at it, but are you prepared to talk I, about this? I am a little bit. So if I remember right, and some of my numbers were a little bit dated because years old. Yeah. yeah last time i talked to our wing staff and stuff but at one point the f-14 was the maintenance hog of the dod for maintenance man hours and oh, yeah. that retired the 53 kind of moved up and i had heard anywhere from a ratio 15 to 1 so every one flight hour that i flew 15 maintenance man hours which could be you know one maintainer 15 hours right. or three maintainers five hours to get that aircraft turned around or to fix that was just if it was just minor glitches. If it's something major, I mean, that aircraft could be down for quite some time, especially if it was a gearbox change. Yeah. Because there's so much that goes into that. I think it was always, right, there's lies, damn lies, and statistics. Well, what do you count? What do you not count, right? <laughs> so in other words, it's not a 15-hour turn every time you fly it just to refuel it and check the hides and all that. Right. But when you factor in whatever you decide to factor in. Yeah. And there's different levels of inspections, you know, a daily or a turnaround. Right. That's right. Yeah. Probably bringing back some memories it for does, you, yeah. too. yeah. Except it always struck me as interesting that a daily, I think, was actually shorter than the turnaround or something like that. Anyway, maybe it took less time. I forget. But Yeah. I... <laughs> All right. Notoriety. Dude, I should let you go first, but I've been waiting for this for so long. I'm so excited because when I was a kid, I loved Firefox. Clint Eastwood. Yes. Big fan. And I always wanted to know what that airplane was in the beginning. It's got to be a 53. It is. And we talked about this and we had to Google it just to make sure. But yeah, it's a 53 <laughs> Delta. All right. So the two engine, six blade. Correct. Prior to the E, obviously. And uh, yeah, he's out, what, in Alaska jogging because he's had his crazy life and they need him back to go steal this thing. And yeah. And then, of course, the guys look cool with their masks and everything. Because so. he's the one person that can do it it's like the old voiceover sunday 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 (laughs) all right well where else besides firefox and right now people are like googling what yeah Uh, anyway where else uh (laughs) have we seen this thing so a couple other movies uh transformers okay so i had an ex-girlfriend reach out to me one time when transformers came out and she's like so how does it feel to have your profession idealized by an action figure and i was like i didn't have an answer for that but at the time i thought it was pretty cool so uh, actually, one of the Transformers turns into a 
Tom Clancy, Some of All Fears with Morgan Freeman. Ah, uh, yes. So, you know, the nuke goes off and the president's uh, Iron Beast, the limos get tossed over a few times. And then you got the 53s coming in. With like, Marines. With the heroes, you know, the king of battle to, you know, sit here I come to save the day. <laughs> and then uh, I think Battle of Los Angeles shows so many helicopters. I mean, okay. there's 46 H1s, I think. Don't call me. I'm sure somebody will Google it. But 53s were somewhere in the mix, yeah. too. So I'm actually cheating. I'm glad we're a radio show because I'm looking at my phone. If you ain't my, cheating, you ain't trying, My right? team provided me background, but I just want to make sure I got this right. So Operation Eagle Claw, you remember this? I do. Was the attempt to save our Iranian hostages in 1980. And boy, that was a cluster. You know what? Yeah, and that's a case study in itself. It's, yeah. I think the big lesson learned from there is no plan survives first enemy contact, whether it's physical enemy or, or whether there are so many challenges with Operation Eagle Claw mm -hmm. because the requirement was for four CH-53 helicopters, but somehow the word got that they needed a minimum of five and there was anywhere from six to eight that they had for the mission. But as we said, you know, the 53 is such a maintenance beast. So a couple of them went down for hydraulic leaks and a cracked rotor blade, which is what you don't want. They were trying to refuel with the C-130 on the ground there. So that mission was successful when they took off because there was dust storm and at night and stuff, one of the 53s uh, accidentally flew into the C-130. Lots of gas, lots yeah. of fire, not a good combo. Yeah. So that mission was scrubbed. And, and they had to abandon some aircraft. They did, yeah. yeah the so burnt remnants of it. I think they lost eight aircraft altogether. And certainly, yeah, that I think was a defining moment for operations and planning and a lot of the things that we take for granted now Correct. as joint as we are we're not very joint back then but yeah we've got this sideshow you know we do the merge where we tell stories mm -hmm. i think that particular operation could be an interesting one because you kind of know about it, at least i do but not a lot i don't remember any movies or anything about it no there's i think there's been some documentaries sure. but it's one of those case studies not just in the community but the military as a whole on how mm. we do operational planning and it's not to point fingers at anyone it's coming from a safety standpoint what can we learn from it what can we do differently yeah considerations and stuff so yeah. there's always lots of challenges well, that's pretty cool. And uh, again, not that the PJ community is very well known, although we were trying to get them on the show at some point, but the MH53 and uh, the, some of the Jolly Greens, I would say, is notoriety as well. We had a A1 episode where they talked about rescuing a guy, and a lot of these crews ended up like sacrificing themselves to try to pick up one or two guys in Vietnam. And so it's not just the airplane, it's the people, aircraft, I should say. But this has been around a long time. It's done a lot of good work and uh, still serving the Marine Corps quite well, sounds like. Absolutely. it's. I think it's going to be that old uh, 70s Ford or Chevy pickup that just keeps on, <laughs> Yeah. You, you know, you overhaul the engine, you change brakes once in a while and make sure it's got some oil and we... Just keep running it. Yeah. All right. Fantastic. Well, in your 1,000, 1,100 hours, when you look back, is there one particular flight that really stands out in your mind, a good sea story you can share with us? You shared a couple already, but... There's always a couple. One of the ones as a new lieutenant I think about is... We are going out to the training areas just out east of San Diego, like by Imperial and, and the mm -hmm. sand dunes and stuff like that. And we'd always take two or three co-pilots and we'd swap us out. Okay. I remember I was sitting under the main gearbox. I got up because I had to go do something. I forget. Maybe we were switching out co-pilots. And there was a drain line from the main transmission into like the, a catch pan. And keep in mind that main transmission carries about 25 gallons of fluid, right? And it's hot. Yeah. My helmet, you know, I'm a tall guy. 
hit that drain line. And the next, all I knew is I had hide fluid down the side of my flight suit <laughs> and I'm trying to get the crew chief's attention. I'm pointing up there. I'm like, what's going on? He looks up. I just see him just start laughing, shaking his head. And he yells, you know, over the hum of the helicopter. He's like, it's a drain line, sir. <laughs> I was just freaked about like, I broke the helicopter. <laughs> but you didn't scald yourself? It was warm, but okay. again, you know, I had protection. I smell like hide fluid. It took me a week to get that out of my skin. <laughs> but I think the best thing to illustrate how this is a stable aircraft and kind of all sorts of conditions is we're doing a resupply mission from El Asad up to El Kaim. It was told we had to go that night. I was on night strip alert and I was with one of the well-respected majors in the squadron who I still admire to this day. WTI, we call him a night ninja because he was a night systems instructor, had all this experience. So we were dash two of a section of two aircraft heading up towards Alkine and it was low light early in the morning. Oh, by the way, there's a dust storm. So, you know, on the goggles, we have this thing called scanillation where it's all kind of looks like white noise. So we're dash two and we're just flying off the exhaust plume of the other aircraft and whatever oh. night lights we could have reference to and stuff like that. And I was on the controls and the major wanted me to retune a radio because we were talking to Dasker, the direct air sports center. And they gave us a frequency change as we got close to Alcom. And I think I looked down for a second. It was one of the few times when I looked up, I had kind of like spatial D, spatial disorientation. Mm -hmm. He had the controls, but that aircraft was so stable because I immediately got on the gauges. And of course, with the flight control system that we talked about earlier and stuff, it gave you a stable platform that I could recage myself and nice. get back in the fight. Yeah. That kind of, you know, was a puckering factor moment. Like, oh man, this stuff's for real. And I was a new lieutenant, first time in combat and stuff like yeah. that. I'll tell you a quick story like that. I was following uh, a junior pilot, but he was in the lead and we were flying at night in a left-hand turn and I was on his right mm -hmm. and I'm by myself, right? It's all on me. Well, I look in at something like you did. And when I did, he had rolled out. Oh, so now he's on my left, but going straight and I'm to his right going left. And I just see a bunch of airplane and had to do an emergency kind of move. And I think he happened to see me or maybe my lights go by or something. And, but by then I'm upside down and pulling away from him and, and on goggles and trying to get my bearings and yeah, it wasn't fun, but uh, that's why they pay us the big bucks, right? Absolutely. And we train hard, but <laughs> he was probably like, Jello, where are you going, man? <laughs> yeah. What are you doing? What's wrong with you? <laughs> yeah. Where do I start? Hey, you know what? I didn't ask you how many Marines can you fit in this thing? Per nate tops 55. Wow. That's, that's with centerline seating. I've mm -hmm. never seen that happen. Okay. During the war, we always limited it to 24 because that's what we had seatbelts. Okay. But in extremist situation, one more, right, man? <laughs> that's right. Is 24 like two platoons or something? I should know my ground structure a little uh, better, I guess. A couple but... squads, squad okay. of 12 ish, right. you yeah. know, plus that's assuming if they have all their gear. Like that 55 is like if when I say they're slick. Everybody's naked. Yeah, almost. I don't want to but... see that. <laughs> <laughs> Neither do I, but. <laughs> All right, man. Well, I've got a couple of listener questions here. Let's do a quick lightning round because uh, we, we've been at it for a while. Jimmy Rangecroft, I think I can answer this one. He wants to know, is there any kind of artificial flight control system or fly-by-wire? You said there is, and it works quite well. Absolutely. Yeah. I made you the expert in our 
turning that conversation. <laughs> there you go. I'm going to keep going here. Tom Oates wants to know the CH-53 had some bad crashes and a bad reputation in the media for many years. Bad is his use of the word here. Has that improved at all or will new model of the aircraft rectify those past issues? I mean, to be fair, every aircraft in development, the F-35 certainly, goes through a lot of growing pains. Was that true for the CH-53 as well? You're spot on yeah. with that. You know, the future of the next model comes out is improving those, but just like anything, when new technology comes, new challenges yeah. too. So. Yeah, especially if you start changing things. Now it's new, so you got to flight test it, you got to figure it out, and all that. All right, here's one we didn't talk about on the looks. Alex Wick wants to know why is the tail rotor at a slant, and how does that impact stability or performance? Great question, Alex. Well, let's talk about the main rotor blade first. It's right. actually a five degree forward slant, ah. just for increased performance. But that tail rotor. The difference, if you look at the tail rotor between the Delta and Echo, the tail on the Delta is actually a little bit thinner than the Echo. The Echo is a little bit thicker, but it's actually a slant to offset the counter-rotating torque of the main rotor blade. Okay. So if you think of thrust vectors or thrust angles, it's actually pointed down a little bit. Hmm. And it's on the left side versus if you look at like a Soviet helicopter, it'd be on the right side. Oh, wow. I think I read like 20 degrees-ish or something. Maybe that's just one of those uh, numbers that, I don't know. I, that sounds right. But some designer, when they were coming up with this, said, hey, we'll get a slightly better performance if we angle this or whatever, right? We talked about the F4 with its wingtips and the anhedral of the tail. But somewhere along the way, someone figured out our best performance is five degrees on the main rotor and some number of degrees on the tail. The Skorsky's had some 100-pound heads that are yeah. many more PhDs more than me. <laughs> have a reason for that any more than one is more than me so all right nick brown says every time i see a 53 flying their landing gear is always down why is that i've noticed this with the frogs as well we haven't done a show on the frogs yet but i wonder if it's because nick brown has seen them in, in low altitude maybe i mean yeah that is quite common i wish nick could see me smiling and i'm chuckling right now <laughs> that kind of goes back to a maintenance thing so every year or 365 days that gear needs to be cycled and Sometimes they cycle them, sometimes they don't. Sometimes it comes down to air crew preference that they didn't pull the pins. As I was leaving the community and transitioning to other things, there was a tendency just to leave the gear pinned because there were some maintenance concerns, but I don't want to broad brush stroke, say everything was maintenance. Again, it comes down to air crew preference, and sometimes they were just going out to do bounces, so there's no need to right. what we call cycle or suck the gear and stuff like that. Well, so retractable gear, obviously, for fixed-wing airplanes like my F-18 makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. For you guys, did you notice when you did suck it up, was there any better speed or, I mean... There are slight improvements, okay. but the big thing, what we're going to recognize is power requirements because okay. there's less drag. Gotcha. Everything in the helicopter world is the speed of the main rotor or NR. Mm. We always want to keep it 100%. Sometimes we'll go faster, you know, depending on the limits specific to the 53, 103 to 105%. We would call drooping turns sometimes if we we're in cruise and we want to conserve gas and we'd bring it back to 98%. But you never want to go slower than that because you lose lift yeah. and that's your life. Yeah, exactly. NR is life. So in the fixed wing world, as you know, having flown the C-130 and now regionals, what do they say? There's two types of pilots, those who have attempted a gear up approach and those who will. How about in the 53 world? Are there uh, stories of guys landing with a gear up? Not intentionally. <laughs> well, of course, but I mean, Not course, that... you have two people up front and a crew chief, <laughs> so I would hope this is fail-proof, but surely someone has done it. We're human. Uh, yeah. Pilots like to think we're infiable and, you know, we're <laughs> gods, but... Let's be honest, you get busy. It Am is part of the checklist. I will yeah. tell you, though, there's times where the gear hasn't come down. Sure. And then, you know, we call into maintenance and 
53 squadrons always keep a couple mattresses in stock from the barracks where they'll come in, they'll cargo strap down some mattresses mm-hmm. on the deck and we'll land on it if that gear never came down. But that's last resort yeah. because we'll go up and try to do some circles, get some G's to get that gear to swing out and yeah. hopes and, you know, have tower confirm is the gear down? Is it not? So if you land on the mattresses, what, then they just have something to jack it up and uh, put it on stands or something? Yeah, then... Is that even a mishap? I guess it depends on how you do, huh? Was there damage? (laughs) (laughs) Who knew? Who saw it? Did we scrape paint? I don't know. And then the last question is a great segue into wrapping this up. It's from Joe Kunzler, who's been a supporter for a long time. He says, what does the new CH-53K King Stallion upgrade from the current helicopter? Now, we talked about the MHC and RH. 53, A, B, C, D, and E. Ooh, that was a lot. But we didn't really talk about the, I think it's just the CH-53K, right? Correct. There used to be a C Stallion, or maybe that was the Marine one, but you guys used the Super Stallion, and now this is going to be the King Stallion. So that is the future of the 53, and that was just starting in development when I was transitioning okay. to fly C-130s. So my pulse on the development is relatively limited and there's been a lot more information on that. But the biggest difference is it's going to be a fly-by-wire system with upgrade engines. So when I was leaving, they had the G T64 419. So they worked some more magic and redesigning to give this thing a little bit more power. But the biggest difference is that the public will notice is you won't have the external fuel tanks on there. So it almost looks like an MH because those tanks are all in the sponsons. But what that enabled the designers to do was to increase the width of the internal carrying capacity because under the old Echo, we could only carry the old wooden pallets you might see in the back of a truck. They were Mm -hmm. like 36 by 36 inches. Anything else bigger, we had to break down and hand load. But with the new Kilo, they have the NATO 463L pallet, the big metal pallets you would see rolled onto like a C5 or C17 Ideally, they can roll that right of those in there and just increase the logistics capability yeah. of that aircraft. Pull it off the uh, C-17, throw it on a CH-53K, yeah. and off you go. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's still going to do heavy lift. Mm-hmm. So that's always a big thing, especially, you know, amphibious operations, ship-to-shore movement sure. from the ships to resupply the Marines or the Army because, hey, we're joint. We, lo- we love our brother services. Purple, yeah. Purple, go team. How about for the cockpit? Is it going to be, I hope, done with the old steam gauges you loved so much? No, it's glass. So they've upgraded that just with anything. It'll have its challenges because, you know, you have an instrument scan on the old steam gauges. It changes because all this information is more centrally located. They didn't give you weapons yet, though, I'm guessing. You know what? I don't know about what the weapons design is. Come on. I was hoping more like for the harms or maybe we can drop some torps off of it. Yeah, yeah. Torpedoes. <laughs> well, again, we can always do some research and our listeners are very generous on helping. Yeah, I read uh, First Flight in 2015. I'm sure it's going through its normal development pains as every aircraft does. It's like birthing pangs, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. And so, but hopefully it's coming soon and it'll keep this thing going around for probably a long time. I'm excited to see it fly. I mean, yeah. hopefully when the Miramar Air Show kicks back in, they'll yeah, have one this in a few years. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the future of the 53. What's the future for Twitch? The future for Twitch is uh, airline flying. So yeah. life is always getting a little bit better. You know, I, I look up at a 53 and I'm like, I don't wish I was still flying. I'm like, oh, that was a great experience. Great memories. Flew C-130s, you know, flying airlines. Just see where things take me. You okay. Know? Well, you're still doing the reserves, right? I am. I'm back supporting the ground side now as a division air officer. So I'm bringing all that experience I had 
into the general staff to advise him and developing, you know, plans or mm-hmm. how we can support his commander's intent scheme and maneuver with air. Not only that, but you're continuing to serve freedom-loving people all over the world, including in the Marine Corps in the United States specifically, but you're also serving yourself because if you work towards that retirement, then that's a perk you'll have the rest of your life. So that's nice. Absolutely. Looking forward to that. But just like we were talking earlier, is uh, it's an honor to serve the great people of the United States. Amen. All right. Well, on that note, before I ask you about your call sign, and I think you said you had a couple, but one quick last look at the 53. What did I not ask you or, or how would you summarize it when you tell people what you flew or, you know, what else is there? Obviously, there's a lot we didn't talk about. We know that, but I know you got some notes there, but. You know, the one thing that we didn't cover is we can be a flying gas station. We didn't talk about FARP operations. Oh, all right. Give us a quick primer on that. All right. Forward arming refueling points so we can carry more gas with internal tanks called tactical bulk fueling delivery system. All right. 800 gallons a piece. Add those in there and we can take fuel out to refuel tanks on the ground. Humvees give the ground personnel uh, more fuel and we can kick hoses out and we become a Texco station. (laughs) So it's very versatile. It's like your old Ford pickup truck. We're the utility players. It's adaptable. You know what I didn't ask you about? I was surprised I didn't take as much grief for it as I thought I might, but the crabs dueling with their claws out. uh, I assume you guys do some, we don't need to get into a lot of detail, but (laughs) you do some defensive maneuvering. Obviously, you're not trying to shoot each other down like the Cobras maybe, but you guys obviously do some tactics against surface air threats, air-to-air threats, stuff like that. We alluded to it earlier, train flight, you know, hiding behind mountains or hills and stuff like that. But unfortunately, if we do get locked on, we'll do our best to break contact by what you see in the movies, jinking, going left, going right, up, down, Mm -hmm. popping flares, chaff. I mean, we'll even throw Gatorade and, you know, aluminum (laughs) foil out the back where we have to, man. Like, just make it work. Whatever it takes. All right, Matthew Bowman. Twitch. So again, we're an audio show. I think I could take a stab at this. (laughs) (laughs) Go for uh, it. Well, you burn a lot of calories. (laughs) I don't sit still. I was talking with my hands. I just need a big watch. Oh boy. All right. Did you have any other good call signs along the way? I did. So my initial call signs were Timex, takes a lick and keeps on ticking. And then NASA was a nugget call sign, no apparent situational awareness. (laughs) I might've gotten upset, unloaded, show cleared without realizing my First CO was standing behind me in uh, Iraq in the ready room. Clearing turn first uh, Did before not you unloaded do on someone. <laughs> so I just had this voice of God talking over my shoulder and Uras, sir, good afternoon. Can I have a few minutes? <laughs> and then Twitch, just you know, shiny object. Squirrel, 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 shiny object moving all over the place. I don't sit still much. Well, that's all right, man. It keeps you thin. Most of the time, yeah. <laughs> well, Twitch, you've been a good character and a great addition to the show. I want to thank you for being so patient with me for uh, all these three and a half years to uh, get the CH-53. And I think we delivered. Awesome. It was a great experience and I uh, look forward to doing it again with you sometime. For sure. And you're here in San Diego, yeah? I am. So all I'm- right. We won't let it be three years next time. For sure. But, uh, you know, also, uh, we're going to count you as a friend of the show. We'll put you in our Rolodex. So if we have questions on the show or if Paramount ever lets us uh, go watch that movie, I'm going to invite back some guests. So if you're interested in watching the fighter guys go love on each other, you know, you come to that with us. Let's do it. As long as there's some uh, adult beverages and and some good camaraderie. Yeah. Three or four times now, I've had a studio reserved. I've got invitations out to people hey you know come to this thing it'll be fun and then they you know crush my dreams but if it works out now that you've been here you're on the list we'll make it happen uh, thank Fantastic. you all right twitch well thanks a lot for your time today all right appreciate it
<laughs> ha ha. The shitter. Ass and trash. Big enough for my ego. Oh, man. Twitch, you're a character, buddy. Thank you for coming on. And I'm glad you're here in San Diego. And we'll hope to see you at the Top Gun Maverick screening, hopefully in May, if it ever comes out. And just around the park, maybe in some random airport as we're both flying. But what a great interview. What a lot of fun. Thank you, Matthew Bowman and uh, all your squadron mates who made your flying possible so you could come share your expertise with us. I also want to thank Scott over at Studio C here in San Diego. He's hosted us a few times and he's helping out. In fact, he produces the TomCast. So a big shout out to him and his studio and all the folks over there. All right, a couple things as I re-listened to myself there and you just listened to it, you might've said, what do you mean, Jello? The ship's always moving if you know anything about naval aviation. And yes, generally that is true. Ships are making steerage or headway when they are recovering and launching aircraft. What I meant there is that the ship starts moving due to the seas. So if you're ever in rough seas and the ship starts heaving or pitching or rolling, and I think those all mean different things. I don't know, but just bear with me. If it's doing anything other than just sitting steady as it's moving through the seas, then it can be difficult. And certainly that is true for us in the fixed wing world. And it sounds like it is for those guys as well. And then also uh, regarding the wheels up, wheels down thing, somebody did send me on Patreon because they get to listen to the unedited interviews early, a link to a video on YouTube of a CH-53 that's trying to land with its two main gear down, but not its nose wheel. And this thing is sitting five feet off the ground in hover power, and there are brave Marines running under it, trying to get that nose wheel down. Man, those guys are crazy. I think eventually they don't succeed, so they just stack up a couple mattresses, like Twitch said, and they set it down gently on that thing. So if I can find a link, I'll throw it in the show notes. Otherwise, just go YouTube it. I bet you can find it. YouTube it, I guess like Google. Eh, you get the point. All right. Again, I know we left a lot on the table regarding the other H-53 models. You might remember back to the beginning of the aircraft series when I put the F-A-18 and then in parentheses, Super Hornet, because I wanted to cover all models of the Hornet and the Super Hornet. And then we did the H-60 and then we put in parentheses, I think like Black C- and Jay, maybe, you know, Hawk. And the idea here was maybe we would talk about all of them. And, you know, Twitch, I'm not calling you out, but clearly, as you just heard, listeners, he knows the Super Stallion. We'll have to circle back around to some of the Jolly Greens and some of the uh, Pavlo stuff and the Mine Hunters and all that. So just more opportunity down the road. And then for the CH-53K, I did a little research. Looks like it was delivered, three were anyway, since October of I think 20, it's just about to go into operational test and evaluation. I think it started just this last summer of 21. And if you don't recall that, you might want to go back and listen to our TPS episode, Test Pilot School, or our NASA flight test, where Recky was part of both of those. And we talked a little bit about the differences between the different kinds of tests. So the King Stallion, as it's called, sounds like a couple of those delivered, and they're just starting to make some progress. Anyway, Surely uh, enjoy your feedback on the 53 there. I'm sure you have something we either got right or wrong or missed or whatever. Feel free, as always, to email us, leave a comment in social media, and our friend Clint here in the closing bumper will uh, tell you how to do that. All right, before we wrap up, we want to thank our new Patreon strike lead, Brian Lonto. And as always, with all due respect to our friends who complained about the disclaimer, we're still going to do it. And that's right, the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of myself and my guest and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. So that'll do it for this week. Boat will be back next time since it's the end of the month. We usually try to get a Warbird episode with him. And I think it's going to be our first foreign Warbird. So tune in for that here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. In the meantime, take care, be well, and we'll see you next time. So long.
You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Email us at questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platform and check out our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. For exclusive content and to help support the show, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.